Our speaker this evening is a native of California. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from Adams State College with highest honors, I might add, and Master's and uh, PhD degrees from the University of Texas at Austin. He's a many talented uh, individual. He's uh, archivist in the National Archives and Records Service at the Lyndon Baines Johnson Library in Austin, Texas. Uh, he's a, an author, editor, uh, and reviewer. His most recent uh, publication, of course, is Stephen Dodson Ramser, Lee's Gallant General. He's also been a contributor to Civil War History, Civil War Times Illustrated, the North Carolina Historical Review, Virginia Country, and numerous other uh, publications. These are a brief summary of his accomplishments, and at this time I'd like to introduce to you Gary Gallagher and Stephen Dodson Ramser, Lee's Gallant General. Gary? <clears throat> see if I can get this microphone right. <clears throat> can you hear me in back if I talk this loud? Is that all right? Okay. Well, it's a pleasure to be here tonight. I've heard and read about the Civil War Roundtable since I was a very young boy interested in the Civil War, and I probably didn't think I'd ever get here. So it's fun to be here to talk to you about Dodson Ramser tonight. By way of background, I just want to say briefly or a couple of things about what drew me to Ramser. In reading Lee's Lieutenants, I noticed three instances in which D.S. Freeman mentioned that Ramser probably deserved a biography, that the materials were good, uh, excellent set of manuscripts which were then in private hands, would have made possible a decent life of him. Bud Robertson also mentions Ramser in a couple of his publications. And I thought about that for several years and decided to see if I could find where his letters were. His letters had been given to the Southern Historical Collection <coughs> at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I went down and looked at them, and they are indeed a wonderful set of letters. There are several hundred of them. They compare favorably with Dorsey Pender's letters. I think they're a little better, in fact, than Pender's more of them than Pender left, and talk about everything. They run the gamut from politics to military affairs. There's a beautiful set of love letters to his wife included in the letters, and they extend from his when he was 14 years old to the day before he was killed. So it really makes possible, this set of letters makes possible or made possible for me to understand some things about Ramser that it, it's often hard to do with 19th century figures if the sources aren't that good. I also think that Ramser is a very good example of the kind of officer that Freeman, <coughs> excuse me, I have a little cold, that Freeman talked about. He's, he's a case study, in my view, of how bright, capable young officers were brought along in the Army in Northern Virginia. Lee and others kept their eye on them. They promoted them when they could. They took care of them. And they reached a certain point, as Freeman says, and then they were killed off. And they just when they were about to reach their potential, they were lost. The process started over again. I think Ramser is an excellent example of that kind of an officer. And he is one of the best 
of the younger men who really would have flowered, I think, in late 1864, early 1865, if they, haven't, if they hadn't died on the battlefield. When I started working on Ramser, I assumed that he was French, probably, because of his name, but in fact, he had German roots. His father changed the spelling of his name from R-A-M-S-O-U-R, it was Ramsauer, to Ramser, for reasons that are unknown. Ramser's people came from southern Pennsylvania. They were southern Pennsylvania Germans who migrated through the Shenandoah Valley, ended up in the Piedmont of North Carolina. He was born in May of 1837, the first son and second of nine children of Jacob A. and Lucy Dodson Ramser, born in Lincolnton, North Carolina, which is on the edge of the Piedmont, lumbering country, mining country, some agriculture. He led a very comfortable childhood. His father and his grandfather were prosperous merchants in Lincolnton. His father owned 20 slaves, which was a lot of slaves to own if you weren't engaged in agriculture, and his father was not. He was sent to good schools for the region. He just had a very comfortable upbringing. He manifested from his earliest days a great interest in things military. His grandfathers had both fought in the Revolution, Utah Springs, Guilford Courthouse, other North Carolina battles. There was a battle fought very near Lincolnton, Battle of Ramsour's Mill on some ground that one of his grandfathers had owned. So he grew up listening to this martial lore, soaking in these tales of the Revolution, and was very much taken with both the Revolution and military leaders in general. He was a precocious reader as a boy. He read biographies. He the stories of the world's renowned heroes, as he called them, particularly the British generals. He had decided by 1853 that he wanted to go to West Point and pursue a career in the military. He failed in that attempt, couldn't get an appointment, so he went on to Davidson College to prepare himself in the subjects that were important at West Point, mathematics and others. While at Davidson, he came under the tutelage of Daniel Harvey Hill, who was on the faculty there. I'm sure you're all familiar with him, a West Pointer, had a distinguished Mexican War record and was an educator following the Mexican War. Hill took Ramser under his wing, guided him in his studies, and more importantly, interceded in his behalf with Ramser's congressman and persuaded the congressman to appoint Ramser to the academy in March of 1855 to take his place with the class that would commence in June 1855, which would be the class of 1860. This class was one of the five-year classes, the last of them. The West Point course had been changed from four years to five years during Robert E. Lee's superintendency. It was a five-year course, and it was the last full class to graduate before the Civil War. Among his classmates, his prominent, or men who would later be prominent in the war, were Wesley Merritt, Horace Porter, uh, prominent Union generals, James Harrison Wilson, uh, Frank Eugee, who was Benjamin Eugee's son and later a, a, an excellent Southern artillery officer in Lee's army, was also a classmate. One class behind him were Tom Rosser, George Custer, John Pelham, and Henry DuPont. Well, Ramser arrived at West Point with many misgivings about his decision, really fears about how he would do, because it was well known that students from the South and the West 
did not fare nearly as well at West Point as students from the Northeast and Northern states, really the Northeast. Their schooling wasn't as good. They flunked out at a much higher rate. It was much harder for them to do well at West Point. He had been there just about a month when he wrote a long letter to his best friend back in Lincolnton. He said, I thought long and considered well on the probabilities of my success at West Point. I imagined all the difficulties and hardships which I expected to encounter, but no one could ever imagine, underscored twice, <clears throat> the severity of the West Point course. I now understand why so few Americans choose the military as a peacetime career, for they balk at the severe and almost tyrannical laws which are necessary for the preservation of order and discipline in a standing army. Well, his letters ran this way for a while, but he in fact did quite well academically throughout his career. He was always in about the upper third of his class. But in military subjects, he excelled. He was very near the top of his class in all things military. And he was selected early for positions of authority. He was made a corporal, then a sergeant, then a lieutenant. And in his first class year, he was made a captain of Company B of the Battalion of Cadets. There were four companies, four captains, so Ramser was one of four. And these cadets were chosen on the basis of their military aptitude rather than their performance in the classroom. So he was early on recognized as someone with military ability. He was a well-rounded person while he was West, at West Point. He was throughout his life. He was very religious. His letters read very like Jackson's, Lee's, Jeb Stewart's. He invokes the name of God in nearly every letter, thanked God for the good things that happened and so forth. One cadet from Virginia wrote home that Ramser was, quote, the one professing Christian in the entire class, unquote. But he was not a prig, and so the other cadets not only accepted him, they liked him. He chewed tobacco and smoked and drank and went to Benny Havens' tavern and, and raised his share of hell, really, and got a lot of demerits for doing it. But he still, he, there's a little bit of a dichotomy there, but he, w he was religious but not a prig. He was very popular with his classmates. He was extremely interested in politics, was a hardcore Southern Democrat. He had very hard views on sectional issues. He talked about secession as early as 1856. When James Buchanan won the election of 1856 over Fremont, the Republican, Ramser said that was nice, but let's don't be fooled by this. There's going to be a civil war in a few years, and the South should stockpile materials. We should increase our militias, and so forth. He was, he was looking toward a sectional break as early as 1856. At his graduation in June of 1860, he ranked 14th of 41 men in his class. He was the third-ranking Southerner in his class. Most of the top students were from the North. He had 389 demerits, which would put him somewhere about in the middle. It was a normal number of demerits. He was 23 years old at this point. He was bright, athletic, an accomplished horseman. Uh, he liked women, and women liked him. They found him attractive. His classmates, Wesley Merritt, said that he was perhaps the most universally beloved man in his class. Uh, Benjamin Sloan, another cadet, said that he was respected, honored, and loved. In short, I think upon his graduation, he typified 
what most people, most mid-19th century Americans would have considered to be the ideal kind of man to be a successful military officer. People thought that he would be successful at that point, and many of them commented on it. His career in the United States Army was very brief. He was only in for about nine months. He was a brevet second lieutenant in the 3rd Artillery, uh, stationed at Fort Monroe for a while, had some duty in Washington, D.C. Abraham Lincoln signed his promotion papers on March 19, 1861. He was to be assigned to the 4th Artillery, but Ramser never reported to this unit. Much of the South had seceded by that point. The Confederacy had been formed, and although North Carolina had not left the Union, Ramser submitted his resignation on April 6th and headed for Montgomery, Alabama to offer his services to the South. He was made a lieutenant, ordered to Memphis. Before he could get on the train, he had a telegram from Governor John Ellis of North Carolina. Harvey Hill had been working in his behalf again and told Ellis that Ramser would make an ideal artillery officer. He was offered a captaincy of the Ellis Light Artillery, a Raleigh battery, and he headed back for North Carolina was very soon thereafter made a major. And for nearly the next year, he commanded this battery. He drilled it in North Carolina through July when he went to the Suffolk area in Virginia. He stayed near Suffolk until April of 1862, very quiet duty, with one exception. He happened to be in Norfolk on court-martial duty on March 8th which was, what, 123 years ago today, and he chanced to see the fight between the Monitor and the Merrimack, which is the duel between the two iron monsters, as he called it in a, in a letter home to his sweetheart. It, uh, it made a great impression on him. He wrote a very long letter, seven pages long, excellent letter. It makes good reading. But other than this, he really had few highlights in this period from the summer of 61 through April 62. In April, he was sent to the peninsula to be attached to John B. Magruder's force, which was contesting McClellan's advance up the peninsula at that point. Magruder was so impressed with his skill as an artillerist that he put him in charge of half of his artillery and put him in charge of training all of his artillery in some of the new French tactics. His battery was lightly engaged at a couple of places on the lower peninsula in April. But in late April, he heard that a new infantry regiment was making up in the counties near Lincolnton. He was an ambitious man. He wanted to be a colonel. He knew that the promotion would be slow in the artillery, so he talked to some political friends in North Carolina and wrangled his election to the colonelcy of the 49th North Carolina in late April. He returned to North Carolina, drilled this new regiment for a while, and was back in Virginia in mid-June in time to take part in the seven days very pleased to be back in Virginia. He was ecstatic when Lee took command of the Confederate forces on the peninsula because Lee had been issuing these very aggressive statements saying that, the, that uh, they were not going to retreat, they were going to move forward and so forth, which appealed to Ramser a great deal, as did stories of Stonewall Jackson's exploits in the Shenandoah, Shenandoah Valley. Jackson and Lee were his two heroes during the war, Jackson really more so than Lee. The 49th North Carolina was, uh, was engaged, but only slightly so, until Malvern Hill. Now, there are a couple of sheets of maps that have been handed out to you. I'm not going to go into great detail at all on these, but these will just give you some notion of what Ramser was up to in these battles. 
Malvern Hill was really his baptism of serious combat duty during the war. His regiment stood along the, the, the swampy ground along Western Run, which is the, marked with a one on your map, for most of the day listening to the battle raging. Just about twilight, the regiment was shifted over to the extreme Confederate right, took part in the last Confederate assault of the day, and Ramser was badly wounded in the course of that assault. His, he took a ball in his right arm, which mangled the arm, incapacitated him for six months, and made necessary his wearing a sling for nearly a year. He went back to North Carolina after this. Most of his family and the first physicians he saw thought that he would lose the arm, but he went to a prominent physician in Richmond who managed to save it, although he never had the full use of it. Although his role at Malvern Hill was brief, lasted just a few minutes, he came to the attention of Lee, Robert Ransom, his Ram, uh, Ramser's brigade commander there, praised him highly in his official report. Apparently others mentioned him to Lee, and Lee made a mental note of this young colonel of the 49th North Carolina. In October of 62, after the Battle of Sharpsburg, or Antietam, George B. Anderson died. He was another North Carolinian, died of wounds that he'd received in the sunken road at Antietam. He commanded a brigade of four North Carolina regiments. And Lee selected Ramser to succeed George B. Anderson in command of that brigade. He sent his name in on the 27th of October. And on the 1st of November, Ramser was made a brigadier general. He was 24 years old at that point. Still too badly injured to join his brigade, he missed the Battle of Fredericksburg. He joined the Army in Northern Virginia when it was on the Rapidan in January of 1863 drilled it, got acquainted with it, and had it ready to go into action at Chancellorsville in early May, which was re his first duty as a brigadier general. He was engaged all three days at Chancellorsville. On the first, he was the first brigade of the second corps that came onto the field. He pursued Slocum's 12th corps westward along the plank road. He took part in the uh, flank attack on the second on May the 2nd, but his, his real service, his contribution at Chancellorsville came on the 3rd, early on the morning of the 3rd, when Jeb Stewart was trying to renew the Confederate attacks to press the attack that Jack that had petered out the night before because of darkness. He had some success in the morning, the Confederates did, but by about 8 o'clock, the Union troops were holding, then they were more than holding, they were pushing back. A large number of Confederate troops congregated in some works that had been abandoned by Slocum's Corps. They huddled on the reverse side of them, wouldn't go forward, men from several different commands. One of Jeb Stewart's staff officers came up to a brigadier general who commanded some of those troops and ordered him to attack. The man refused. Ramser had heard this, hollered out to the staff officer that his brigade would make that attack. The staff officer told that to Stewart. Stewart said, be my guest. And so they did. And the map on here shows they moved across. It's not very far. They didn't go very far, but it was very hot fighting. They moved through Slocum's works, through another set of works, and over to a marshy area near uh, Union Artillery at Fairview. Basically what they did was buy nearly an hour for Stuart to get his line back in shape, try to get the commands disentangled, and get them ready to pursue the attack. 
he took just over 1,500 men into this attack on the 3rd and lost nearly 800 of them in about 30 minutes, 788. One of his regiments lost three quarters of their number in about 15 minutes. Uh, only three brigades in Lee's army suffered heavier casualties in a single battle during the course of the entire war. But this attack very much brought Ramsar to the attention of nearly everyone in the high command of Lee's army. In return for their sacrifice, the brigade and Ramsar were prominently mentioned in a number of reports. Powell Hill said that, quote, Ramsar's brigade under his gallant leadership was conspicuous throughout the fighting. Jeb Stewart spoke of Ramsar's, quote, heroic conduct. And Robert Rhodes said that Ramsar had made the most glorious charge of that most glorious day. Robert E. Lee gave his judgment shortly thereafter when he wrote a letter to Governor Zebulon Vance of North Carolina. He implored Vance to send replacements for the losses that Ramsar had taken at Chancellorsville. I consider his brigade and regimental commanders as among the best of their respective grades in the army, wrote Lee. In the Battle of Chancellorsville, where the brigade was much distinguished and suffered severely, Ramsar was among those whose conduct was especially commended to my notice by Lieutenant General Jackson. Well, this put Ramsar in a position among the elite of Lee's brigadiers. It gave him a solid foundation among the high command. Others had taken notice of him also. He was definitely, after Chancellorsville, marked as an up-and-coming officer, someone to be watched for what would happen in the future. He took part in the Gettysburg Campaign. In fact, his brigade was the first Southern infantry to cross the Potomac. He was really only heavily engaged on the 1st of July. He met up with Howard's Corps again, north of the city, north of Gettysburg, and he, and together with George Doles, as Georgians, were the first two Confederate brigades to get into the town of Gettysburg on July the 1st. He was only and lightly engaged on the 2nd and the 3rd, suffered about 200 losses out of 1,100 men in his brigade in the entire campaign. He'd been in very high spirits as the Army of Northern Virginia moved north, written enthusiastic letters back, and Gettysburg made a change in him. It, he did not despair after Gettysburg, but he was not ever quite the same either. He wrote his sweetheart in North Carolina on the road back to Virginia, our great campaign, admirably planned and more admirably executed up to the fatal days at Gettysburg, has failed. This I was not prepared to anticipate. I looked the thing square in the face, however, he continued, and am prepared to undergo dangers and hardships and trials to the end. With determined effort and sacrifice, a glorious and honorable peace will be our rich and lasting reward. Well, in a sense, this is bravado, I think. He, many people argue that the Southerners didn't perceive that Gettysburg was really a loss. Ramser definitely perceived that Gettysburg was a loss. This letter was written just a couple of days after the battle, and he certainly knew that not only the battle had been lost, but I think the aura and sense of invincibility that, that Lee's men and officers had carried into Pennsylvania did not return to Virginia with them, or at least not with many of them. The balance of 1863 was quiet for him. He took part in the Bristow and Mine Run campaigns. The highlight of the rest of the year was his marriage 
in late October 1863 to Ellen Richmond, a woman, uh, one, a first cousin whom he'd been in love with for some time, had hoped to marry earlier, but had been prevented from marrying by the rigors of the campaigns of the spring and early summer. He and Ellen, Nellie, as he called her, spent a month in the mountains of western North Carolina, a very happy and serene time for him, after which he returned to the Army. She joined him shortly thereafter and was able to spend most of the winter of 1863-64 with him. This was undoubtedly the happiest period of his life. He wrote letters to his best friend during this period, and he was just ecstatic about being married, being able to be with his wife, was only for about three months, but it was a very joyous period for him. Well, the onset of Grant's, the now Grant-led Army of the Potomac in May sent Nellie back to North Carolina and set Ramser to estimating the abilities of, of this new Union general. He was not impressed. He compared Grant to Pope. He said John Pope came from the West, Grant came from the West, they were up against second-string troops in the West, and when they get up against us, they will come to grief. He did not have a high opinion of the abilities of the Army of Tennessee, not of the soldiers, not of the leaders. He was very uh, condescending toward their performances. After Chickamauga, for example, he wrote that it was clear that part of Lee's army had been on the field because the Army of Tennessee had managed to win a victory for a change. He said it certainly wouldn't have happened if Longstreet hadn't been there. He took part in the Battle of the Wilderness, played a, not a key role, but a, 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 an interesting role on the 6th when Grant was putting pressure on both Ewell and Hill and close to breaking both of them. Burnside had been ordered to hit in between to put pressure along the entire Confederate line. Burnside had gotten lost that morning, hadn't been able to find his way to the fighting. When he finally stumbled into the gap where he was supposed to be, Ramser's brigade, which was the only reserve that Ewell's entire Second Corps had, was put into the gap, stopped Burnside, and as Edward Steer says in his monograph on the battle, he had, Ramser's brigade appeared at the critical point in the very nick of time. The battle didn't hinge on that, but he did play a, a neat little role there in stabilizing the Confederate line. His finest hour as a brigadier general came a few days later at Spotsylvania. As you know, the Confederate line at Spotsylvania had a bulge in it nearly a mile, it jutted north nearly a mile in an area called the Mule Shoe or the Horseshoe. On the morning of May 12th, early on the morning, Winfield Hancock launched a massive Union attack which smashed through the salient, pushed all the way down to just north of the McCool House, which is in a clearing here, it's marked on the map, nearly broke the Confederate line. John Gordon's division, and with help from some of Jubal Early's brigade, stabilized the line on the Confederate right, on the right side of the salient. Ramser's brigade was pulled out of line on the left, formed below the McCool House and pushed back up the left side of the salient to the point Mark II. It doesn't look like it's very far on the map, but there were thousands of Federals between where he started and where he ended up. It was an extremely difficult maneuver, which he carried off very well. He was wounded again in the course of doing this. And his men were engaged without 
any relief from about 5.30 in the morning until nearly 2.30 the next morning. They didn't eat, the rain was pouring. You've all read accounts of, of Spotsylvania. It was absolutely ghastly. No let up. Grant piled in more and more troops as Lee's engineers tried to build a new line across the bottom of the salient. They kept sending messages to the brigades up at the tip of the salient, hold on just a little bit longer, a little bit longer. They ended up holding on until nearly 2.30 the next morning when they finally withdrew to the bottom of the salient. Ramser knew that his brigade had done very well, as did all the men, and the, the praise poured in from various high officers. Richard Ewell and Robert Rhodes thanked Ramser on the field. Ewell said in person and then in writing that Ramser was the hero of the day and had saved the Second Corps. Lee sent for Ramser, asked him to come to his headquarters so that he could thank him in person. Ramser himself wrote in his report, to the gallant officers and patriotic men of my little brigade, the country owes much for the successful charge, which I verily believe turned the fortune of the day at that point in our favor. Well, he did not exaggerate there that was the judgment of the army, of Lee and others in the army, and it was Freeman's, Douglas Southall Freeman's judgment 80 years later when he wrote in Lee's lieutenants that, quote, seldom in the war had one brigade accomplished so much in fast, close fighting. It was another display of Ramser's remarkable leadership in offensive combat. About two weeks not quite two weeks after Spotsylvania. Ramser learned that Jubal Early had been elevated to command of the Second Corps. Richard Ewell's health had given out, mental health and physical health, I think. He was unable to continue in Corps command. Early was bumped up to command of that, and Lee selected Ramser to command Jubal Early's division. He sent his name in in late May, and he was it was confirmed on June 1st, 1864, which was the day after his 27th birthday. So age 27 years and one day, Ramser became the youngest West Pointer to achieve the rank of Major General in the Confederate Army. This promotion closed what was really one of the more brilliant careers of a Brigadier General in Lee's Army. He'd earned an enviable reputation, as had his troops, they were referred to by some of the Richmond newspapers as the Ironsides of the Army on occasion. He had shown that his men could both defend and attack with great skill, and he had developed a tremendous esprit de corps among his troops. His brigade quartermaster wrote in 1863 that, quote, General Ramser is admired by all, <clears throat> and his brigade is devoted to him in italics. Another one of his soldiers said that Ramser had the martial qualities that make a brave, capable officer. He won the esteem of his men. We regretted to lose him, as under him we had won renown and commendation. A clergyman in the brigade said that the soldier's faith in his ability enabled him to lead them anywhere. If he was guiding them, they never distrusted, never hesitated, never quailed and had the most unbounded confidence in his daring, skill, and military resource. Ramser infused his men with something of his own nature, concluded Harding, this, this clergyman, 
and they seem to feel the same kind of personal enthusiasm towards him that the Second Corps felt toward General Jackson. Well, Ramser, of course, that was written after the war. Ramser didn't hear of that, but that would have, he would have considered that the supreme compliment since Jackson was his idol in terms of military leaders. Ramser's first duty as a major general, or his first big battle anyway, came at Cold Harbor on June 3rd. He was not in a critical part of the battle. He had several close calls, had a couple of horses killed from under him, but his, his division was only lightly engaged. His first real campaigning as a major general began on June 12th, when his division, along with two others of the Second Corps, headed away from the lines near Richmond toward the Shenandoah Valley under Jubal Early's command. Lee had sent Early to the valley, toward the valley, by way of Lynchburg with orders to repel David Hunter, who was moving toward Lynchburg, which was an area, a key communications and uh, supply center. Early was to repel Hunter. He was to threaten Washington, if possible. And he was also to try to draw strength away from the Army of the Potomac to oblige Grant to send troops from the Army of the Potomac to help deal with him so that Lee might find an opening to do something against Grant. Well, this campaign, as I'm sure you're aware, was quite successful. Early accomplished all those objectives. He did ease the pressure on Lynchburg. He knocked uh, Hunter over into West Virginia out of the war for some time moved all the way down the valley into Maryland, fought a battle at the Monocacy, and ended up on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. in July of 1864. This is the occasion when Abraham Lincoln came out to watch the fighting. He had too few men, only I think about 14,000 or so, to, to move into the works at Washington. Grant had detached veteran units from the Army of the Potomac to help defend the Capitol. Early knew he couldn't get in, so he withdrew to Virginia, but it had been a successful campaign and it had been a great learning experience for Ramser. They'd marched hundreds of miles, fought a number of skirmishes, fought a pitched battle at the Monocacy. It had given him a good feeling for divisional command. He was much more assured as a divisional leader at the end of this campaign than he was at the beginning of it. He spent, he and early, and the rest of the Second Corps remained in the Shenandoah Valley then for the balance of the summer of 1864 through July, August, and September. They maneuvered up and down the valley, crossed over into Maryland on a couple of other occasions, secured that fall's harvest for Lee's army, and tied up a number of federal troops. Grant grew tired of the ineffective performance of his generals opposite early and decided to send one of his first stringers over to deal with him and he dispatched Philip Sheridan to the valley with orders to collect enough men to deal with Jubal early once and for all and he gave Sheridan orders not to bring on a general engagement until he had such a preponderance of strength that he could smash early and end any Confederate threat in the valley. Well early as he moved up and down trying to engage the Federals in battle became very contemptuous of Sheridan because Sheridan would not fight a pitched battle with him. He thought that Sheridan lacked decisiveness, 
thought he was dealing with another man like David Hunter and generally became overconfident in his movements in Sheridan's presence. So we'll come back to haunt him very shortly. During this period of late summer, two things other than military affairs occupied Ramser's mind. One was the northern elections that were coming up. He kept a very close eye on the northern elections, read northern newspapers whenever he could, and early on was quite uh, certain that Abraham Lincoln would not be reelected. The fall of Atlanta in early September changed that. He became a little more pessimistic then, but still hoped that if they could do well in the valley, Lincoln might be defeated. The more important thing that was on his mind was that he was going to become a father soon. Ellen Ramser was pregnant. She'd become pregnant when they were in winter quarters together. And he wrote many, many letters to her and received many from her. Very solicitous letters asking about her health, saying that he, he really hoped he could be with her when the baby came. He thought for a while he might. But as September came and Sheridan started to show more signs of activity, he knew that he wouldn't be there when the baby was born. And he regretted it very, very much. By the third week in September, 1864, Sheridan felt confident enough to bring on a general engagement. He decided to move against Early. Well, Early's little army was spread out near Winchester. There's a map of this here. He had two of his divisions, those of Robert Rhodes and John Gordon, up at Stevenson's Depot, up at the top of the map. Ramser was in Winchester. This was an example of Early's not taking Sheridan very seriously. He felt that he could divide his army with impunity, which made many people nervous. Ramser among them, Kid Douglas and other staff officers commented on it. Well, on the morning of the 19th, Sheridan's troops crossed Opecon Creek, moving on the Berryville Pike toward Winchester. Ramser had about 2,000 men in his division moved to the east to where the one is on this map and engaged the Federals there. It was, the, the odds were just about 10 to 1 through most of the morning, but Ramster did have the advantage of very good ground. He fought very skillfully there, withdrew to the second position, which is Mark II here, against very great odds. Early had come on the field and was with Ramster during this fighting. Early had also sent for Gordon and Rhodes, telling them to hurry, to come with all dispatch to Ramser's aid. And he kept one eye nervously to his left and another to his front, Early did, hoping that Ramser could hold out. It was, as the morning went by, a very near thing. About 10 o'clock, the other two divisions came in sight. Jubal Early said when he saw them coming, it was, quote, a moment of imminent and thrilling danger as it was impossible for Ramser's division, which numbered only about 1,700 muskets, to withstand the immense force advancing against it. Well, he held on long enough for the other two divisions to arrive. They launched a counterattack on the Confederate left, which threw Sheridan's troops into confusion momentarily, stabilized the line. But eventually, Sheridan worked his way around Early's left, particularly using his cavalry came down the Martinsburg Pike, which is the Valley Pike there, and drove the Confederates from the field. It was a 
a decisive victory for Sheridan. It was not Jubal Early's finest hour, but it was an excellent performance for Ramser. His men knew it, and Ramser himself knew it. As one of Early's staff officers later wrote, Ramser's division, the first on the field, was the last to leave it. It had held its own during the long day, and when the army was defeated, it was thrown across the rear, and that night covered the retreat, maintaining its organization to the end. Freeman said in Lee's lieutenants that Ramser's conduct was praiseworthy, as brilliant as anything in his career. Henry Kidd Douglas, who wrote I Rode with Stonewall, as you know, an old staff officer of Jackson's later earlies, pronounced Ramser unquestionably the hero of the day. Well, I think he was unquestionably the hero of the day, and that probably pleased him in a way, but it had been a decisive defeat, and so it was a, it was a hollow uh, victory in a personal sense for Ramser. He had done well, the army had been routed. They fell back just a few miles to Fisher's Hill, which is just below Winchester, Early's army did, where they were routed again on September 22nd at the Battle of Fisher's Hill. The Early simply didn't have enough men to cover all the ground between the North Fork of the Shenandoah River and Little North Mountain, as you can see on the map here. But worse than that, he put his best, his, not his best, he put most of his strength on the right, where the ground was very strong, and used only dismounted cavalry on the left, where the ground was weak. Ramser was the, the left, uh, the infantry division on the left, the, the Union troops flank attack came down from that direction and drove the Confederates from the field once again. Again, Ramser covered the retreat. This time Early fell all the way back to Waynesboro, which is deep in the southern end of the valley. Sheridan followed him down, burning the valley as he went. This is when he began his systematic destruction of the Shenandoah Valley, and it seemed that the campaign was over. Well, Lee decided that he still needed this diversion in the Shenandoah Valley, and so he sent early the division of Joseph B. Kershaw and what other troops he thought he could uh, spare, which were few, some cavalry in Kershaw's infantry division. And he told early that he needed the diversion still and he wanted him to engage Sheridan again, that he couldn't afford to have Sheridan's troops come into the lines opposite Richmond. Sheridan had moved down to very close to Waynesboro and then promptly headed back north. The destruction was such that it was impossible to provision even a brigade in the Shenandoah Valley at that point. Sheridan had ample supplies. Early's army did not. Early followed Sheridan back up until on October 14th he was at Fisher's Hill once again, facing Sheridan's troops. But he faced a dilemma here he either had to attack or retreat. He couldn't sit there and wait for Sheridan to do something because he couldn't provision his army in that devastated part of the valley. He also felt he couldn't retreat because Lee wanted him to do something, so he decided to see if he could get on one of Sheridan's flanks. And on October 17th, John Gordon and some other officers climbed up on Massanutten Mountain, which ends right there near Strasburg and Fisher's Hill looked down on the federal camps and saw that they were not prepared to meet an attack on their left. They didn't think the Confederates could get around there. The Confederates found a path 
and early decided to make that on the 17th he decided to make that attack <clears throat> well also on the 17th Ramser got a message that had been wigwagged from mountaintop to mountaintop along the valley ridges that read simply the crisis is over and all is well that was the code that he and Nellie had worked out she was to send him that message when the child was born if everything was all right with her and with the child so he received the message he knew that he had a child he knew that his wife was all right he didn't know whether he had a boy or a girl he went as soon as he got the message he went to talk to Brian Grimes who was one of his brigadier generals another North Carolinian and Grimes subsequently described the meeting in a letter to Nellie he said quote his joy was full deep in his heart tears of sympathy for you filled his eyes when speaking of you and the baby Ramser spent some time with Grimes who a little later that night got a message from his wife saying that he'd had it that she had had their child that same day so they got together and talked again after which Ramser sat down and wrote a letter to Nellie his last letter to her are you truly well he asked her I can't put into words my feelings for you I love you more devotedly more tenderly than ever before I want to see you so bad God bless my darling and may he soon reunite us in happiness and peace a joyful family a spark in Ramser and he became fairly optimistic again about the chances that coupled the chances to do well against the Federals the news of his child together with his knowledge that the federal flank was vulnerable he climbed up Massanutten Mountain on October 18th he believed that the attack could work and was very enthusiastic during preparations for it through the 18th it was slated to go off at dawn on October 19th he appeared that morning dressed to the hilt he had on a full uniform he had a flower in his lapel to honor his new child he was exuberant and confident and ready to get on with it well, the divisions moved around, got on the flank, crossed Cedar Creek, and in a, a really shattering attack, routed both the 8th and the 19th Corps of Sheridan's army early on the morning of the 19th. The 6th Corps was also there. Early didn't press the attack. He, in a conversation with John Gordon, he said, don't worry about them, they'll go presently. But they didn't. They rallied they fell back to a point just north of Middletown and the line stabilized late in the morning and early just sat and he waited and he waited for the federal troops to fall back as the day went on more and more of the Confederate soldiers slipped out of the lines they were hungry they hadn't had good provisions for a long time and they drifted back toward the federal camps they had overrun to loot the camps for food and clothing and other supplies the Confederate signalmen up on Massanutten Mountain started sending messages down saying that the Federals were building up to the north. Sheridan had been away when the attack started. He'd made his way back to Winchester and was preparing his troops for a counterattack. This is the battle where he made his, his Sheridan's ride back to, the, back to the battlefield. Well, the Confederates in the front line who had been so exhilarated early in the morning felt a sense of dread settle in as hour after hour slipped by they could see the Federals building up they knew that an attack was coming and I think they also knew what the outcome would be because the numbers were so disproportionate well, about 3.30 Sheridan struck 
he punctured the Confederate line first on the left where John Gordon's division was. Kershaw, who was on Gordon's right, caved in after Gordon fell back. Ramser launched a kind of a mini counterattack when the Federals first started, which stabilized the line in his front momentarily, but he too fell back shortly and managed to rally about 800 men of his division on a hill behind a stone wall just southwest of Miller's Mill, which is marked on your map. And with those 800 men and some fragments of Mississippi units from Kershaw's division, they held out from 4 until 5 o'clock. He thought that if he could hold on until dark, that the Early's little army of the valley would be spared the ignominy of another rout, such as they'd suffered at Winchester and at Fisher's Hill. Early more than once in the afternoon pointed to Ramser's stand up there, tried to rally other men to follow Ramser's example. By five o'clock, the Federal line had overlapped both of Ramser's flanks. They were in a semicircle around his small command, and he was taking very heavy fire. He had a horse killed from under him right about five o'clock. He secured another horse from one of his couriers, had barely gotten into the saddle when that horse was killed. Somehow he found a third horse there on Miller's Mill. He'd just grasped the pommel of the saddle and was starting to swing up when a bullet entered his right side under his arm, passed through both his lungs, and lodged in his rib cage on his left side. When Ramser went down, his line started to disintegrate almost immediately. His staff officers hurried him away from the field, put him into an ambulance, which made its way to the Valley Pike and started south toward Strasburg to get him away from danger. They got into the town. There was a bottleneck on the pike. There were hundreds of men, caissons, cannons, wagons, ambulances, trying to make their way south. A little bridge broke down under the heavy traffic, and Ramser's ambulance was trapped north of this little creek. Just about dusk, a Union cavalry patrol rode up. One of the cavalrymen hollered to the driver of Ramser's ambulance, who apparently was an incredibly dim-witted man, who was in the ambulance. And the guy took his hat off and said, the general told me not to tell. <laughs> so they immediately took possession of the ambulance, carried Ramser back to Sheridan's headquarters, which were at Bell Grove, which is a fine old mansion in the valley. I'm sure a number of you have seen it and put him in one of the bedrooms there. Well, the word spread quickly through the Nor Northern Army that Ramser had been captured, and a number of his old West Point classmates came by to visit him that night. Wesley Merritt came and sat with him. George Custer came and sat with him. Henry DuPont, who later wrote an account of the Valley Campaign, sat with him for a long time and left a moving account of it. The presence of these men, I think, helped ease his last hours, undoubtedly. The doctors knew that his wound was mortal when they first saw him. There was no chance that he would recover. He lingered through the night, drifting in and out of consciousness, babbling, sometimes lucid. He took a lot of laudanum, which eased his pain but made him incoherent. In the times he was lucid, he would mention Nellie and the baby and how he wished he knew at least whether he had a son or a daughter. He thought he had a son, when actually he did have a daughter. 
He finally died about 10.30 on the morning of October 20th, which was a week short of a year since he'd married Nellie previous October. His remains were embalmed at Bell Grove and transferred through the lines at Cold Harbor a couple of weeks later, taken to Lincolnton where he was buried. By way of summing up, I'd like to just mention some factors that I think contributed to Ramser's rapid rise into his excellent record as an officer in Lee's army. Two important things were he had a, an intense ambition, very ambitious, and very, he had great pride too. He wanted to get ahead and he wanted to do well and he worked extremely hard to do that. He worked every angle. He secured political support to get his, his colonelcy of the 49th North Carolina and he uh, worked every angle he could to become a major general, although I think most of what he did had very little to do with his actual promotions. He was a very tough disciplinarian and drill master. He drilled his troops constantly, especially in the winter. He was very insistent that their camps be kept clean. He kept them busy. He didn't give them time to be idle. He knew that it, the busier they were, the less sickness there'd be, the less dissatisfaction there'd be, and the less desertion there would be. And the result was that he managed to field units both at, the, at, at all levels, regimental, brigade, and divisional levels that were in better condition than many of the other units in Lee's army. An officer of one of his regiments wrote in 1864, the men understood this, and I think they appreciated it even though the work was hard. This man wrote, that Ramser was universally beloved by every man in his brigade. No braver or better man lives than he is. He takes good care of his soldiers, he fights hard, and is very successful. His men like to fight under him. He led by example. He was aggressive, he was alert in battle, he was resolute. He often would be in company with his skirmishers rather than back where he should have been. That's why he was wounded so many times. He was wounded at Malvern Hill, at Chancellorsville, at Spotsylvania twice, and then wounded twice at Cedar Creek. He was wounded once before he received his fatal wound. He had any number of horses shot out from under him. But his men responded to this kind of upfront leadership with a real devotion and willingness to do things that they might not have done for other officers. He seemed to do exceptionally well in critical circumstances, such as those at Chancellorsville and Spotsylvania, at Winchester, 3rd Winchester, or Pecon. Indeed, as Jubal early noted on one occasion, quote, Ramser stood out in adverse circumstances, a most gallant and energetic officer, whom no disaster appalled, and whose courage and energy seemed to gain new strength in the midst of confusion and disorder. <coughs> His contemporaries commented further, though, on him, and I think in some ways, as much as they admired him as a military figure, they admired him even more as a man. He embodied the virtues that were cherished by those of his class and place, people who took seriously the concept of a gentleman. Whether we take those seriously now or whether we agree with them, I think, is not really that important. But the point I'm making is that his peers saw him as the best product, in a sense, of their southern civilization. Early said he was a valued friend as well as an able lieutenant. 
brave, chivalrous, and capable. John Gordon said that his battlefield record was matched by few in Lee's army. <clears throat> but he said more than that, he was the chivalric soldier, the noble-hearted gentleman, and the loving husband. Kid Douglas said that, quote, aside from his ability and bravery, he was one of the most attractive men in our army. And Brian Grimes said simply that Ramser was, quote, a noble expression of God's handiwork. Tributes like this run throughout the literature. It's hard to find something contrary to this. I think that he was considered by many to be about the best that the South could have produced as a man apart from his skill as a soldier. I certainly enjoyed working on him. He was literate and able and successful, a great letter writer, and I think his life provides some insights not only into how men progressed in Lee's army, but also into antebellum Southerners, late antebellum Southerners, and how their fellows perceived them. That's all I have. Be happy to entertain questions. Gary, thank you for a very interesting and very informative presentation. On behalf of the round table, I'd like to present you with this tankard as a memento of this occasion. It's inscribed as follows. Presented to Gary Gallagher for gallant service to the Civil War Round Table of Chicago, March 8, 1985. Thank you very much. Gary has graciously consented to uh, entertain any questions or comments you may have on his presentation. Okay, would you repeat the question? Yes, the question is what regiments were in Ramser's brigade at Chancellorsville. They were the 2nd, 4th, 14th, and 30th North Carolina. Yes, those, that was his brigade for his entire stint as a brigadier general. After uh, the Battle of Gettysburg, where Alfred Iverson did not perform that well, Lee gave Iver the remnants of Iverson's brigade to Ramser until he could find a replacement for Iverson. The question is, what happened to Nellie and her child after the war? Nellie put on the clothing of deep mourning immediately after Ramser was killed, after she heard that her husband had been killed, a veil, floor-length black dresses, and wore them for the rest of her life, which was 35 years. She died in 1900. The child, christened Mary Dodson, grew into a beautiful woman. There are, there are accounts, uh, newspaper accounts and other accounts of her great beauty, and there's a photograph of her. She was a very attractive woman and accomplished as an artist and a musician. She never married. She was in a crippling accident in the teens, the early teens, and spent her last 20 years as an invalid. She died in 1935. So his line, Ramser's line, died out with his daughter. There are collateral descendants in Lincolnton now, but there are no direct descendants of Ramser.
the question is why did Southerners not do as well at West Point as Northerners did? The I think it's as simple as the fact that there was better schooling available to northern and I sh to northern cadets, but really northeastern cadets. The the western cadets struggled often as much as the southern cadets did, but there was not anything like the system of schools in the south as there was in the northeast. There were a number of men from Harvard and Yale and Princeton in Ramsar's West Point class. It was fairly common to put in a little time at another college. Ramsar went to Davidson for a while, which was a very bad school at that point. It was, it was not much. And they just came poorly prepared in compared, uh, compared to the Northeastern cadets. Mathematics was the key. That was the subject. If you, if you could not do well in mathematics, you could not make it at West Point. And that's the one that most of them failed on. And so I would assume, yes, that was probably really lacking in the Southern curriculum. I'd just like to make a comment. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy the fact that you brought out a lesser known general to our attention. You know, we know all about Lee and Longstreet Jackson, so, but, but never about these lesser men. Now, this club had that same problem for a while. What are the uh, lesser known generals in the Union Army who uh, I associate a lot with Ramsar because he was gallant. It's going to wind up real with uh, uh, Yes. A good fighter on the spot when he was needed. And uh, that part, one of the parts I enjoyed, the fact that you brought out a lesser known general. Now, when I first became acquainted with this group here, they never heard of General Stephen A. Hurlburt. <laughs> <laughs> Who actually won the war for the Union <laughs> <laughs> at the Battle of Shiloh. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciate very much your talk. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's kind of an inside joke. Okay. <laughs> Any other questions <laughs> or comments? And again, thank you very much, Gary.